0: We know that Jesus Christ can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in all things, even as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. We also know that Jesus was made like his brethren in all things, suffering, being tempted, and succumbing to death as we must. And we know the reason that he did that. Is so that he could truly understand what we go through and help us to go through those things when we have to. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. We often sing songs to the effect about how Jesus knows and Jesus cares, and he does. We sing songs about how our Heavenly Father understands, and he does. And yet... Sometimes, sometimes, when cancer, Alzheimer's, death, desertion, or some other deadly peril strikes, we still in our humanity sometimes might wonder where is God? Where is God? Does he really, truly? completely understand we might wonder is he really here with me and if he is how could this happen to me i want you to know tonight that if you've ever asked those sorts of questions you are in real good company you are not the first faithful servant of the lord to ask those kinds of questions in fact when you start examining the list of faithful godly people who have asked very similar questions the list is quite astounding for example in judges chapter 6 gideon is the first on our list who asked a similar question in judges chapter 6 verses 11 through 13 the new king james reads as follows now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. The Midianites had taken over, as it were, this area, and in order for God's people not to starve, they had to hide the food from the Midianite oppressors. And the angel of the Lord, verse 12, appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now get the picture here. He's scurrying around like a, like a rat here, trying to hide what's left here in the, the grain press, trying to hide just scraps and scrids of food. And this angel of the Lord appears to him and says, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. <laughs> if I'm giddy <Gideon>, and I'm going... <laughs> I'm looking behind me for who he's talking to, because it sure ain't me. I'm thinking... Gideon said to him, oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? If if this is if I'm God's man here and God's with us, then how could all this happen? We've heard all the stories about God's awesomeness and God's greatness and all the great things. God, where is it now? You ever been there? He says, but now the Lord has... Here's our word from this morning's sermon. But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Sometimes we may feel God forsaken, but we're not. Gideon felt that way, but he wasn't. And we would know that if we read the rest of the story. But Gideon asked that question. Hey... If God's with us, how how come we're in such peril, such deadly peril? But he was not alone. Turn to me to Psalm 85. Psalm 85, beginning at verse 4. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. God, help us. Restore to us this joy. Where are you? Are you, are you going to be angry forever with us? Another one that we might know well is Elijah. Turn back with me to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. Look with me in verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how... He had executed all the prophets with the sword and then Jezebel sent messengers to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. When he saw that he arose and ran for his life. That phrase is actually in the Bible. He ran for his life. And went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself, went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die, and said, Lord, it's enough. Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father's. thought God had deserted him. And if we read over um, a little bit further here, in verse 10... He answers God when God asks what he's doing there. And he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord of hosts. The children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. He felt God forsaken, but he wasn't. But he had questions. Why? Why all of this? How, how, how can this be happening? Finally, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, let us turn to the book of Habakkuk. It might take you a moment to find. We don't often preach out of Habakkuk. And there are times in the Psalms where David asks similar questions to what the sons of Korah did in 85. But for now, look with me at Habakkuk chapter 1, first four verses. Habakkuk lived in a time of great cultural chaos, of incredible injustice, and spiritual wickedness and so look what he asks in habakkuk 1 the first four verses the burden which the prophet habakkuk saw O lord how long shall i cry and you will not hear even cry out to you violence and you will not save god where are you he's asking why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble in other words how can you let all this just continue before my eyes and not do something god, god where are you For plundering and violence are before me, there is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds, he's in this terrible place. And you know, we go to the New Testament and we could talk about instances the same. Like I said, it's quite a lengthy list of faithful people of God who've cried out, basically, God, where are you? look at this terrible situation that we're in what's going on where are you we know from Matthew chapter 11 that John the Baptist sent emissaries to Jesus asking Jesus are you the one or do we look for someone else John the Baptist is probably sitting in the castle Macaris he's sitting there he's going to die and you know John the Baptist did nothing but preach the truth even when it hurt told Herod that he couldn't have his brother Philip's wife and he just preached the truth and so here he is and he winds up being imprisoned and as we know he's beheaded for being who he was for God but he he says are you the one or should we look for somebody else John the Baptist questioned About the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. Three times he said, I prayed with the Lord to take away this thorn in the flesh. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Even Jesus Christ himself cried out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me of all people? Jesus now we know that jesus was a very special and unique case we know that god did not forever forsake his son jesus we understand that he just jesus had to experience because he became sin for us he who knew no sin became sin for us so he had to experience as we experience what sin can do to a person even though he never sinned and so because he was made sin for us He had to experience that feeling of being forsaken by God so that he would be able to sympathize with our worst experiences. God was forced to turn his back on Jesus momentarily, but Acts 2 verses 27 through 33 tells us that God did not abandon Jesus' soul to Hades, but he raised him up. Jesus was not forsaken by God long term he was not abandoned to Hades but even Jesus cried out why have you forsaken me Jesus felt that that aloneness that detachment that wondering where God was even Jesus so if you've ever asked those sorts of questions you're not the first saint of God to do that but in answer to that question Where is God when pain strikes, when grief and peril strikes? Although we often recite Hebrews 2 and 4 when it comes to Christ, when our hearts are broken or when our faith is shaken or when we struggle with something, there's an Old Testament prophecy about the Lord that we often overlook when we talk about Christ's ability to sympathize with us. And that's in Isaiah 53. Please turn there. Yes, Hebrews 2, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Yes, Hebrews 4, he's been tempted in all things as we are. But let's not leave Isaiah 53 out of that particular conversation, out of that particular equation, or when we ask... Those sorts of questions in those situations. Isaiah 53. I want us to focus on one verse. And that is verse 3. Isaiah 53 and 3. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. And acquainted with... With grief. Want to take a look at this in depth. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief to begin with. The word despised here in the original Hebrew means to hold in contempt, to despise, to abhor, to disdain. The word despised means to be considered vile to be considered worthless or despicable i want you to understand tonight that the son of the living god understands what it means to be considered by others as vile despicable and worthless he knows what it is like when people reject revile exclude, abandon, forsake you and hate you for doing the will of God. Jesus knows. It was prophesied right here that when Jesus came, He would understand this. He Himself would be despised. He would also be, it says in verse 3, rejected. That word in the New American Standard Version is actually translated as forsaken. He would be forsaken. He would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. What does that mean? And and I really want you to get this. It means this. It means that Jesus would be no stranger to sorrow. He would be no stranger to pain. He would be no stranger to grief. He would be no stranger to suffering. He would be well acquainted with With grief and suffering the Hebrew word for grief here can mean disease affliction sadness calamity or evil Jesus was not only not immune from those things they were typical in his life he was not a stranger to affliction sadness calamity evil or disease He knew this sort of grief firsthand. I want you to stop and think about this prophecy. And I want to consider the life of Jesus. From the time Jesus Christ... We think about grief and and being on the cross and his temptations. But we often forget the, the human life he lived and how there was so much grief and pain in his life. He was no stranger to it. He was well acquainted with it. For example... I want us to see how from the time he came into the world as a baby, from just from infancy, pain and evil and suffering and affliction surrounded Jesus. We know the story how he was born. We know the story of the manger and Joseph and Mary. We also know the terrible, terrible, horrible, awful, painful, evil, That Herod did. Remember the story of Herod? Wanted Jesus dead, so what did he do? He sent his soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all of the baby boys two years old and under. And as those soldiers came in there and butchered all the baby boys two years and under... That was the direct result of Jesus being born. And the fact is, Jesus knew before he was born to Mary, before the word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus knew what Herod was going to do. Is that right? We know it's right because it says in Matthew 2, this was a fulfillment of prophecy. God had said, this is going to happen. The horrible pain that surrounded his coming into the world when evil Herod did this butchery of the baby boys you know sometimes sometimes it would be easy it would probably have been easy for Jesus to feel guilty but Jesus didn't do this Herod did it Herod chose to do evil Because of Jesus' arrival in the world. Because of Jesus being in that situation. Because of the Son of God being there. And doing the right thing and coming into the world. Herod was threatened. So Herod in his evil agenda did this. But it was painful. Jesus knew pain and grief and suffering. He was acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows. His parents we also know had to run for their lives under the cover of darkness to a foreign land. Matthew 2, 13 through 15. Joseph awoke from that dream and the scripture tells us while it was still dark, he he took his family and he ran for his life. How'd you like to have middle of the night, God tell you, you've got to go now. Don't take your bank account. Don't pack your bags. You've got to go now. Jesus knew the awful pain and suffering of death, came close to his beloved family members. You know, we don't talk about this much, but we all believe from the scripture that Joseph died sometime before Jesus became an adult. The scripture does not tell us when Joseph died, but we don't see Joseph after Jesus Being somewhere around the age of 12, we just don't see Joseph again. What does that mean? That means this, and we often forget this. You know, there's a few around here lately that um, have lost beloved family members. And when I stop and think about a couple of brothers in particular, neither one of them worships here, but a couple of brothers in particular whom I know who have recently lost their dads, Jesus lost Joseph. Now i realize he was the son of god but joseph was his physical father figure and at some point in his young life jesus knew the pain and suffering of losing his physical dad we don't often think about that but he did not only that but jesus knew the pain and suffering connected to the death of a close kinsman when he lost john the baptist and herod beheaded john the baptist Jesus knew the pain and suffering of losing a good friend whom he loved in Lazarus. In all of those cases, Jesus was not unfamiliar with the sorrow we feel when we lose a loved one close in our family. Jesus knows. He went through it. After his baptism and his temptation, Jesus returned to his hometown. Returned to the hometown synagogue. Goes into the synagogue and and now keep in mind... He goes back to his hometown where where he'd basically grown up, where he had people that, you know, doubtless knew, Joseph and Mary, who'd known his dad, and... He had acquaintances there and, and all of that and maybe people that he knew from the synagogue. And so Jesus goes into the synagogue and he sets down and he gets up and he reads the scroll. We know the story. And the people are talking about how gracious his words are and all of that. And then when he tells them the truth and how it applies, they want to throw him off a cliff. Jesus knows the pain and rejection when you talk to people in your family. People you are acquainted with, people that you know and have known for years, and you talk to them about Jesus, and they don't want anything to do with you after Jesus knows what that's like. Because he went back to his hometown and he did the same thing, and they wanted to throw him off a cliff. He was truly a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Not only did his own people, John 1 and verse 11, reject him, his own brothers didn't believe in him at first, according to John's, his own family. His own brothers didn't believe in him. Even his 12 best friends in all the world, whom he had rescued and saved their lives time and again, ultimately and in the end abandoned him. You know, sometimes we feel abandoned by people in the church. Jesus understands that. He had worked with these men, he had taught these men, and the night that he needed them most, at the moment when he needed them most, as we talked about this morning, the garden of Gethsemane, and then when he's arrested, they forsook him. Jesus knows what it's like when those that you work with for God, those that you learn with and those that you teach, when they forsake you, Jesus was a man of sorrows, he understands he has been there because he's been there he understands and he understands completely that's why he is able to hurt with you and walk through all such perils with you as his faithful people when you when you hurt he walked through the fire with you he understands there are a lot of beautiful Bible passages that relate or reinforce this. But due to time, I'm only going to read a couple. They're both rather lengthy. But I want you just just sit and let the words wash over you. I'll give you the references. But I want you to understand if you've ever been through a hard time and you've asked, Where is God? What is going on? Why has this happened? I want you to understand that Jesus understands a lot of good people have asked that question in Jesus. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief knows exactly where you are, and he'll go through it with you. The first is in the Old Testament, Psalm 103. If you like I say, if you want to turn there, fine, but if not, just let the words walk. Close your eyes and just listen. Psalm 103, the first fourteen verses, this is a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor has he punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy Toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Is that a beautiful passage? From the New Testament, Romans chapter 8 Where is God? when i hurt Romans chapter 8 God, why has this happened? Do you understand God what i'm going through? Romans 8:28 We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Does God understand when we're going through persecution? Does God understand when we're going through the valley of the shadow of death? I am persuaded that neither death, it's the very first thing he mentions. None of these things will separate us. In other words, God will walk with us through every last single one of them. Yes, he understands. Where is God when I need him? He's carrying me, that's where he is. Where's God when I'm walking through the fire? Holding my hand and leading the way. This month's Gospel Advocate is entitled, Where Was God? And it addresses many of these issues, but I wanna share the first three and the last three paragraphs of one particular story with you. Alan Webster, as many of you know, is the preacher at the Jacksonville Church of Christ. He does most of our tracks out here that are associated with house to house, heart to heart. I want you to listen to this story, and then we will close. It is entitled, Where Was God When Disaster Struck? By Alan Webster. Again, the first three paragraphs and then the closing three. I will not read the whole article. On March the 19th, 2018, this year back in March, at 8.23 p.m., an EF3 tornado hit Jacksonville, Alabama, with winds up to 150 miles per hour. How many of you remember seeing that on the news back in March? By the time it ended at 9:10 p.m., the tornado had traveled 34 miles and was up to 34 yards. I'm sorry. Traveled 34 miles and was up to 2000 yards wide. The north side of the city of Jacksonville looked eerily like a war zone. No picture or even video did justice to the destruction one felt while standing amid the aftermath the next morning. Among the 355 buildings damaged or destroyed were those on the campus of Jacksonville State University and the four buildings belonging to the Jacksonville Church of Christ more than a dozen families in the church sustained damage to their homes to their houses two were displaced for months and one home was destroyed remarkably there were only four injuries and no fatalities thankfully it came on a monday night and not on a sunday morning and it was spring break so most students and faculty were away third paragraph listen closely one might wonder why did God allow this to happen to his people listen house to house heart to heart has been they do an incredible work and there's been a lot of people converted by them so why could God how could God allow this devastation to their facility Why did God allow this to happen to his people? Why the distraction from his work? Why delay or discourage his workers? Why cost his kingdom this money? Those are the sorts of questions he's asking. This is a modern day illustration of everything I've said in this sermon. He goes on through the rest of the story, which I won't read, and then he concludes with these final three paragraphs. In answer to the question why, The Jacksonville Church of Christ was established in 1918 so we had many things on the agenda to celebrate our 100th year of service rebuilding from a tornado was not one of them still more good has likely already come from the storm than the suffering it caused The name of the church is better known in the community than before. We have been able to help more than 300 families in Jacksonville, more than the last decade combined. Did you hear that? They've been able to reach out and help 300 families, more families than they have been able to reach out and help in the last 10 years. our members have joined in working in greater numbers than any year in recent memory why is it why is it that the church grows more when it's persecuted why is it the church works harder together and what why does it take that sort of disaster to get the church to pull together in the same direction that's usually the way it works. Look in scripture. When did the church grow the most? The first century? When they're being persecuted to death. And today, you know, sometimes we get so so comfortable and we don't we don't work together and we don't pull together and we don't we don't get shoulder to shoulder and, and all get in there hundred percent. But I'll tell you what. You let a disaster strike, you let this building be ripped apart by a tornado and, or something like that and homes be destroyed. And I dare say that more of us would get to working together in the same direction. He said that's what happened there. He goes on to say, We are more thankful for what we have than we were before. We have prayed more fervently. We have grown closer. God Has been glorified on a personal level March 19th the 18th is when the tornado struck March 19th is my wife's birthday she was in the church building with our daughters when the tornado hit buildings on both sides of the one they were in were destroyed the one they were in was left standing and they were unharmed Final paragraph, final sentence. Where was God when the disaster struck? Right where we needed him to be. Where is God when disaster strikes in your life? If you will hold on to God, he is right where you need him to be. He is holding your hand in the fire. He's carrying you if that's what you need. But He has said, as we learned this morning, never will I leave you nor forsake you. God is right where you need Him to be when disaster strikes. Tonight, if you are not a member of the Lord's Church, according to God... If you are here and you have never repented of your sins and been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. There's a firestorm coming. There's a storm coming that you will not be able to outrun, escape or avoid. If you show up before God on judgment day. And there's one sin on your record. You'll have all eternity. To lament that when you had the opportunity to escape that firestorm you didn't do it the only way out of that firestorm the only way to escape eternity in hell is to show up before god on judgment day with not one sin on your record if you have sinned you need the blood of christ to erase your sins and to keep erasing them you need to be baptized into christ Because there is no storm that has ever occurred on this earth that can even begin to compare with the one that's coming if you are not ready. Tonight if you would be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins or if you're somebody who needs the prayers of the church because you've been baptized into Christ but there's some storms in your life and you need more of this encouragement, you need more of this strength, you need your brothers and sisters to surround you and hold you up by the grace and power of God. If you need any of those things this night, will you come to the front as we stand and sing?